at the first 11 verses of chapter 3. The tag for the message this morning is simple. It's rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. If you'll join me beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of inconcision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do not count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. You would join me in prayer. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to open your word and proclaim thus saith the Lord. Lord, I pray that as I Bring the message this morning that you would hide me behind the cross. I pray that Jesus would be big, that Christ would be glorified. I pray that you will remove any distractions that may be in here this morning, that the message would be clear, that there would be conviction, and there would be challenges to our lives and our faith, Lord. I pray that we would leave here stronger than we came in, God. We love you, and for all you do, in Christ's name, amen. Sir James Thornhill was the man who painted the inside of the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. After finishing a section of the dome, Thornhill stepped back gradually to see how it would look from a distance. Keeping his eye intently fixed on his painting, he backed away so far that he went to the very edge of the towering scaffolding which he was standing. Had Thornhill taken just a few more steps, he would have completed his destruction and fallen to the pavement underneath him. A person present who saw the danger the great artist was in had the quickness of mind to suddenly grab one of Thornhill's brushes and he took that brush and he marred and defaced the painting by brushing over it. Sir James, seething with rage, sprang forward to save the remainder 
peace. But his anger was soon turned to thanks. When a person said to him, Sir, by ruining the painting, I have saved the life of a painter. You had advanced to the very edge of the scaffold, and I didn't call out to you to warn you of your danger, because you naturally would have looked back and been surprised at the danger you were in, and no doubt had fallen to your death. I had no other method of saving you, but by acting as I did. Similar is the method of God's dealing with his people. We are naturally fond of our work and performance. We admire them to our ruin, unless the Holy Spirit calls us from our foolishness. This he does by marring, by defacing our best works, by showing us the insufficiency of our works to justify us before God. The only way by which we are saved from everlasting destruction is by being made to see that by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. This is the tension of Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is warning against the false teaching of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of Jewish Christians who had become one of Paul's biggest antagonists. It was almost as if Paul went on his missionary journeys to these different cities. The Judaizers would follow behind Paul. And as soon as Paul would leave that city, they would come in and they would teach this, this works righteousness to the new converts that were there. The Judaizers believed that Christ was the Messiah. They believed that salvation came through him, but they taught that for a Christian to be truly right with God, that they must first conform to the Mosaic law. Circumcision especially was one of the major things that the Judaizers promoted as necessary for salvation. They said that Gentiles had to become proselytes first. They first had to become Jews before they could become Christians. The doctrine of the Judaizers was a mixture of grace through Christ and works through the keeping of the law. And this false doctrine of self-righteousness was dealt with in Acts chapter 15. It was strongly condemned in the book of Galatians. The Judaizers were legalists in the truest sense of the word. This passage is a rebuke against legalistic religion. You know, legalism is a word that we often hear and we sometimes ourselves throw around in Christian circles. But I think that as we start this passage this morning, I want to kind of define what legalism truly is. Another word for legalism is self-righteousness. It's the idea that we can be made right with God or that we can gain favor with God by our good works. I love one pastor's definition of legalism. He says, legalism is the tendency to regard as law or, sorry, legalism is the tendency to regard as divine, divine law things that God has neither required nor forbidden in scripture and the corresponding inclination to look with suspicion on others for their failure or refusal to conform. The legalist creates rules and expectations that are not found in the Bible and then they feel good about themselves and about their relationship with God 
for having obeyed them. All the while judging others for having failed to live up to their artificial standard of godliness. Legalism is believing that my relationship with God is based upon my performance. It's based upon my actions. It's based upon the things that I do or the things that I don't do. That the way that God feels about me is dependent upon how good or how bad I have been. You know, the funny thing about legalism is that legalism and the prosperity gospel are really fruits of the same tree. The prosperity gospel says, if I give to God, he will bless me. And in the same way, legalism says that if, if I obey God, God will love me more. If I obey God, God will approve of me more. R.C. Sproul said that legalism isolates the law from the God who gave the law. All of a sudden, Christianity becomes about do's, don'ts, regulations, and rules. And it's no longer about a relationship with the creator of the earth. In verse 1 of our text, the Apostle Paul begins with the word, finally. From the surface, it seems that Apostle Paul is like those preachers that at least tell you it's their last point, but then they keep going for another 30 minutes, right? I mean, if you look at the book of Philippians, this is just the middle of the text. But the word, the, the way that Paul means finally is not in a conclusive matter, but rather it is the beginning of a new thought. It's a transition word. In other words, the Apostle Paul is now leaving the thoughts of uh, chapter 1, verse 27, to the end of chapter 2, to now beginning this new thought. And he says, furthermore, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord is, no doubt, a new revelation from the Apostle Paul. Right? The, the title of this series is Joy. The book of Philippians is all about joy up to this point right here where he says this. He has told the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord eight times already. But in this section, Paul reminds the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord as he warns against the false teachings of self-righteousness. One commentator said that rejoicing in Christ is like an umbrella that protects the Philippians from getting soaked by the downpour of false teaching falling all around them. Listen, you are the safest in Christ when you are the most satisfied in Christ. Can I tell you from first-hand experience this morning that legalism will steal your joy? But you will have the most joy in Christ when you meditate and reflect on the, the scriptural truths of the gospel. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not grievous or it's, it's not troublesome to me. The Apostle Paul says for me to repeat the same things over to you is no trouble for me. It's, it's I don't have a problem with repeating these same things to you. But he says for you, it is safe. The same things which Paul is speaking of is what comes to follow in verses 2 through 11, and that is the gospel message, that we are saved from our sins and made right with God through faith in Christ alone. Paul had previously at one point or another 
whether it was through letter or whether when he, when he was there in person, he had told the Philippians that their righteousness came through Christ. But he says here in verse 1, I'm telling you again, I'm reminding you again. You know, there's something about repetition that when you repeat something, it tends to stick into your mind, into your heart a little more. And Paul says, I'm telling this to you again. I'm reminding you of the truths of the gospel to safeguard you. I'll be honest with you, as I've worked through the book of Philippians and my study week in and week out, I've struggled a little bit and kind of been challenged because as I'm working through it, it seems like the same things and the same, the same um, ideas just come up over and over and over. Paul talks about unity. He talks about selflessness. He talks about remaining on mission, he talks about joy, and I struggle because I'm like, you know, I, I want to be able to bring something fresh to the table this week. I don't want to just reiterate what I already said last week, but as I read this verse, I was really convicted and challenged because Paul was a same thing kind of guy. Paul never tired of speaking the truths of the gospel. I'm sure that nobody in here has ever dealt with or knows of a person that seems to tell the same stories over and over again, right? We've never dealt with that kind of person. I'm sure it's just me. You know, and every time you see them, you, you know exactly what they're going to say. You know exactly where the conversation is going to go. And it's like, here we go again. You know, I've heard this one before. Maybe even you tend to, to try to avoid them. But sadly, we often take this attitude to our scripture reading and intake as well. We come to a section of scripture that we may be familiar with, and we skip right through it without really paying attention or taking in what God is saying. But I want to urge you this morning to not be quick to dismiss the preaching and the reading of familiar gospel truths. When you begin to read and hear the same thing over and decide to listen to God's voice despite your familiarity with the passage, the Word of God often speaks directly into your situation. You know, I'm sure all of us have experienced this before. It's a passage that you've read a hundred times before. But this one time you're going through something in life, and as you come to this passage, God speaks right into your situation. He gives you the exact dose of encouragement that you need. He gives you that shot of comfort that you were looking for, just what the doctor prescribed. Listen, man, we never grow tired of hearing the gospel. At the last church I was at, there was a, a lady there who was in the church ministry. She had been saved for a long time, was faithful to church. And the pastor, there was a new pastor there, he was there for about a year. And he was, his series, he was going through the life of Christ. And this lady, no joke, approached the pastor and said, all you ever do is talk about Jesus. Amen. All you ever do, right? All you ever do is talk about Jesus. Shame on us if we don't stand behind this book and talk about Jesus. You know, but what she was really saying was that she wanted to be told 
what she should wear. She wanted to be told how she should act. She wanted to be told rules and regulations from the pulpit. She wanted to, to have this religion, but not the relationship. Listen, we need to meditate on, we need to reflect on the beauty and majesty of God's saving grace. When you're suffering, remember the sufferings of Christ. When you're prospering, remember how he humbled himself and left the glories of heaven. When you feel worthless, remember that you were worth dying for. When you feel abandoned or alone, remember that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And when you feel as if you need to work for the approval of God, remember that it comes through Christ alone. So as we look at our text this morning, I want us to see the safeguard of the gospel. The safeguard of the gospel. Paul says, I'm never tired of telling you these gospel truths because it is a safeguard for you. It protects you. The first thing I want us to see is that the gospel guards against false teaching. Look at verse 2 through 6 of me. In verse 2, Paul says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. In verses 2 through 6, the Apostle Paul begins this rebuke against self-righteous religion. I mean, study this passage this morning. I want us to really just wrap our minds around and understand the, the seriousness of the offense of legalism. It's not just something that to just kind of, you know, act like, well, you know, that's what they do. And, you know, as long as they're not imposing it on me. No, this is a serious offense to God. And I just want to make clear one more time that by legalism, what I'm speaking of is this idea that I can gain favor with God, that I can earn merit with God, that somehow or another I can get in, in, I can get closer to in favor with God because of my works and actions. Listen, make no mistake about it, a gospel message that includes works and faith as necessary for salvation is a false gospel. To the Galatians, Paul writes that the Judaizers were turning them to another Gospel. He says that they were perverting the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that we are saved through faith in Christ alone. As we'll see later on in this passage, in that it's not because of the works of our flesh, as Paul says in verse 3. But so for the Christian, Scripture is our final authority. It's not your mom, not your best friend. It's not your Sunday school teacher, and it's not even your pastor. Listen, when we hear teaching that adds to the Lord, changing is the word of God, especially pertaining to our salvation. We need to always weigh it against what Scripture says. Yes, you should have trust in what your pastor is saying. There should be some faith that, that I am rightly handling the word of God. That is my job, that's what I'm called to do, is to rightly handle it at the same time you also have the Holy Spirit which indwells you. And so at the same time, when you're told something that, that sounds a little fishy, go to Scripture for yourself and see what God's Word says. Paul says to the Galatian church, he says, even if we, talking about himself and the other apostles, he said, if we, and look, he says, or even if an angel 
from heaven preaches any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. Listen to me, the gospel message is set in stone. In verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, beware of, he says, watch out for, guard yourself against the Judaizers who add work to what Christ already accomplished. Look at verse 2, Paul calls them dogs. He says, beware of the dogs. This is kind of ironic and sarcastic from the part of Paul. You see, the, the Jews typically refer to the Gentiles as dogs. But Paul states that a dramatic reversal had taken place through the person and work of Christ. Now with the Judaizers who are regarded as dogs. You see, dogs in ancient biblical times were not these cute little fluffy house pets that you have that you petted and you love to be around, but rather they were they were scavengers. Dogs were, were dirty, they were they were nasty. Dog was a term that was used to describe those who were unholy, those who were unclean. They were dogs often did filthy things. When you look at scripture, it tells us that dogs return to their vomit. We see in Luke that the dog licked a better sores. And so Paul turns on the Judaizers and he said, listen, you label everybody else's dogs, but truly you guys are the dogs. You guys are the ones that are impure. You're the ones that are unholy in the midst of trying to earn your own righteousness. He then calls them evil workers. Workers of evil. They believe that their work, they believe that what they were doing, that conforming to the Mosaic law, granted them favor with God and helped them to attain righteousness. As if God somehow needed their help. But Paul said the opposite. He says, the work which you are doing, that by by, 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 by thinking that you have to follow the rules of the law, this work is actually evil. That your mission is hellish. You're doing nothing but perverting the gospel of Christ. And then he calls them the concision. One of the main points of contention for the Judaizers was the idea of circumcision. They taught that circumcision was necessary for salvation. See, and when, Christian, when Christ first died, this wasn't a huge issue because everybody that was becoming Christians were already Jews. So the Jews had already been circumcised. But as the gospel began to spread to the ends of the earth, there were Gentile converts. And these Gentile converts had not before been circumcised. And so these Judaizers were coming in where these Gentiles were and were saying, listen, if you truly want to be right with God, then you need to be circumcised. In Genesis 17, we see that circumcision was the, it was the seal and the sign of the old covenant that was made with Abraham by God. It was, it was through circumcision that the Israelites were known as God's people. It was the mark on them as the people of God. In Acts 15, the Judaizers opposed Paul and Barnabas. You can go and read it for yourself. They, they took this idea of circumcision as necessary as part of following Christ before a council at Jerusalem. They went to the apostles and the elders that were there and they said, listen, you guys need to tell them that they have to get circumcised. 
But the Jerusalem Council deemed that circumcision was not necessary for salvation as Christ had already perfectly fulfilled the law. And because he had perfectly fulfilled the law, they were no longer bound to it, but rather they were under what we just sang about, that amazing grace. Because of this egregious teaching of circumcision, which means to cut around, the apostle Paul used a play on words, and he calls the Judaizers the concision. While circumcision means cut around, concision just means just to cut up. It's a, in, in the, the literal form, it means mutilation. Because since circumcision was not necessary for salvation, when they were forcing people to get circumcised, they were doing nothing but mutilating themselves. In warning against the false teaching, Paul then provides three distinguishing marks of a genuine Christian in verse 3, which contrasts those of the Judaizers in verse 2. Paul says, you know, we are the circumcision. The concision of the Judaizers was a false circumcision, but those who have put their faith in Christ and not in works, he says, we are the true circumcision. You see, circumcision, because of it was that sign, that seal, it was a word that the Jews would use to, to, to describe themselves. They would say, we are the circumcision. It was a sign of who they were. Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, we, us, who have put that faith in Christ, us who have, who, who know that Christ fulfilled the law, we are the true circumcision. Well, circumcision of the flesh was nothing but a religious ritual. Circumcision of the heart is what saves a person. Amen. Circumcision of the heart is the cutting away of that old man that dwelt inside you. Circumcision of the heart is getting rid of that sinful flesh when you are redeemed and renewed and set apart in Christ. Amen. In Romans 2, Paul's talking about the circumcision of the heart. In verse 28 through 29, he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, now, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Listen, it's only the Holy Spirit who can purify a heart and set us apart from God. Ultimately, circumcision cannot make a person right with God. Law is never enough. A person's heart must change. God has always wanted more from his people than just external conformity to a set of rules. Listen, God has always wanted his people to possess a heart to love, to know, and to follow him. Listen, God is not concerned with the circumcision of the flesh. He's concerned with your heart. The true circumcision in verse 3 are characterized by those who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Rather than worshiping through external rituals, those who are genuine Christians worship God through the Spirit of God. 
When Paul uses the word worship, he's not speaking of a Sunday morning gathering like we're doing here this morning, but rather he's speaking of a life that is devoted to God. You know, the question for us becomes, what are you basing your assurance of salvation on? Is it because of rituals? Is it because of traditions? Is it because of attendance to meetings or involvement in social work? Or is it because of the spirit which is within you? Rest and rejoice in the fact that the spirit of God dwells in you. And because the spirit of God dwells in you, he enables you to worship and to praise God for his glory. True circumcision rejoices or glories in Christ Jesus. Paul expounds upon this thought by saying that we have no confidence in the flesh. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. Listen, we have no confidence in the flesh, knowing that our, knowing that our flesh is utterly despaired, knowing that our flesh is spiritually bankrupt. Christ is our ultimate joy. We boast in Christ, knowing that our good deeds are nothing but filthy rags. We don't boast in our works. We don't boast in what we do and what we've accomplished and performance, but we boast in what Christ has done for us. Paul says we are the true circumcision. We have been redeemed. We have been renewed. We have been set apart for God as the true circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God, not by ritual. We rejoice in glory in what Christ has done in us, not by keeping the law and because of the cross. We put no confidence in the flesh, in our own self-righteousness. The idea of confidence in the flesh is truly the tension of this text. It's the heartbeat of those who are self-righteous, of those who are legalists. It's that, that confidence in what you can do. It's not just that you're doing works. It's that there's confidence that you want to do something for you that Christ has not already done. And you know, if we're honest with ourselves, the truth is there are times when we're guilty of being confident in the flesh. Or once again, maybe it's just me. Maybe, I mean, you got a bunch of sanctified holy saints out here, but I'll tell you, I'm, I'm guilty of this. You know, those times we are confident in the flesh or when we look at somebody's life and we say, why would God bless that? Or maybe in our prayers, when we try to reason with God, we say, God, I've been so good this week, Lord. Lord, I serve at church. I kept my devotion. I gave my tithes. Lord, I've done everything I'm supposed to do, so can you please, Lord, can you please just answer this prayer for me? As if our perceived goodness and our works are going to gain us any favor or any merit with God, as if because we've been good that God is going to do something different for us. In verses 4 through 6, Paul uses the example of his own life to expound upon the worthlessness of self-righteousness. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Paul says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he 
hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. The Judaizers appeal to their impressive Jewish credentials. So Paul now flashes his own credentials. Paul's credentials were unparalleled. Paul knew that the Judaizers couldn't even think about living up to the credentials which he had. Listen, recognize that in this passage, Paul is not trying to brag about all that he is and all that he did, but rather, Paul is like the rich man who is telling the poor man that money cannot buy happiness. He says, listen, I've had it. I've been there. I can, I can brag at that, but it's futile. It's, it's empty. It's, it's worthless. Warren Wiersbe says that Paul was not speaking from an ivory tower. He knew the futility of trying to attain salvation through good works. As a young student, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the great rabbi. His career as a Jewish religious leader was a promising one, and yet Paul gave it all up to become a hated member of the Christian sect and a preacher of the gospel. Verse 4, Paul says, listen, if anybody has the right to be confident in their flesh, it's me. It's me. You know, and we've got to ask ourselves the question, is there times where we inwardly, even though know, we maybe some deep searching because nobody wants to admit this, when you dig deep in your heart, are there times where we believe that because of the works of our flesh, that we are closer to God? As we look at this list, I want us to examine the words of Paul and identify some areas of false confidence. Look, Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Paul wasn't a Jewish proselyte. His circumcision was done in the first class Way. He was a true Jew. Listen, Paul could have had confidence in a ritual. He says he's of the stock of Israel. He was a physical descendant of Abraham. He could have had confidence in his ethnicity. Of the tribe of Benjamin, the holy city of Jerusalem sat within the walls, within the perimeter of the territory of, of Benjamin. When the, when the kingdom split, Benjamin was the only tribe which stayed loyal to Judah. So, pride, so Paul could have had confidence in his rank. He says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. During Paul's day, there were two types of Hebrews. There were Hebraic Jews and there were Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were the modern-day Jews who intertwined with the Greeks, they saw the traditions of their forefathers as you know, lame, and they kind of like, you know, we don't need to do that stuff anymore. They were still Jews by ethnicity, but they kind of let go of all the traditions. And then the Hebraic Jews is what Paul was. Listen, Paul was a private school Jew. Paul grew up with all the traditions. He grew up adhering to all that comes with being an ethnic Jew. Paul said, I can have confidence in my traditions. He says, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Paul, believed, Paul belonged to the morally superior group of Jews. The Pharisees upheld 613 laws. 613 laws that they had to obey 
and Paul. Listen, if anybody had confidence in rule keeping, it was Paul. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. I'm sure many of us here this morning have heard, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe it with all of your heart. As long as you're zealous about it, you're passionate about it, if it's real to you, then it's real. Listen, Paul's faith was sincere. He was passionate, but it was false. Paul could have had confidence in his passion, but salvation doesn't come by passion. And then lastly, Paul says, touching the righteousness of the law, blameless. Paul being a Pharisee, Paul with all of his pedigree and prestige and background and, and his heritage, he was able to keep the commands of the law. He could have had confidence in his obedience. He says if anybody can be confident in the flesh, it's me. I can be confident in the flesh, but the gospel exposed the vanity of his self-righteousness. Look at verses 7 through 8 with me. In verse 7 through 8, Paul says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ. Listen, on the Damascus Road, Paul lost his religion, Paul lost his reputation, but he gained more than he could ever earn. Paul says, these things which I consider gain, these things that I once considered valuable, Works of the flesh, he said that they all of a sudden no longer matter in light of Christ, in, in light of the gospel, in light of the cross. Paul recognized that his pedigree, that none of his accomplishments got him any closer to God. Despite his own righteousness, Paul was just as much in need of the grace of God as the sinners who he despised. Notice in verse 7 how Paul says that he counted his works of righteousness out of the walls. He, he counted them. In other words, as Paul was hit by the grace of God on the road to Damascus, Paul became an accountant. Paul began to assess his life. He began to put the things of the flesh, which he had lived his whole life for, on one side of the ledger. And on the other side of the ledger, he put Christ. And when Paul began to balance the book of his life, he recognized that the works of his flesh ended up in the lost column while the, while the person and work of Christ was the only thing that was gained. Amen. Then as you go to verse 8, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul is repeating the same phrase. He says, I count all things for the loss, I count, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But notice that while in verse 7, Paul counted past. In verse 8, Paul counts present. In verse 7, in order for him to gain Christ, Paul had to set aside everything else he was depending on for salvation. But then in verse 8, some 30 years later, Paul pulls his ledger back out, and he begins to count again, and Paul takes all the suffering he had been through. He takes the heartbreak. He takes the prison cells and the beatings and the shipwrecks and the snake bites, and he adds them to the ledger. And he begins to count, and he says, 
At the end of the day, knowing Christ is still worth more. Amen. You know, maybe some of us need to do some spiritual counseling in our lives. Maybe we've gone cold and forgot about what Christ has done. Maybe we've forgotten about the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we need that reminder and we need to calculate the things that we lost. We need to calculate the works of our own righteousness. And I would imagine that no matter what we've been through in life, how much suffering we dealt with, when we weigh that against Christ, that we would be able to say the exact same thing, that it has been worth it for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says he counts everything as dung. For lack of sounding crass, this is what Paul is saying. Paul says, everything that I worked for was nothing but dung. That's what he, this is the Bible, so don't get mad at me, okay? In Paul's life, it was Jesus over everything. Amen. Listen, can I tell you that Jesus will only be your gain when you count everything as dung. It's not Jesus and circumcision. It's not Jesus and baptism. It's not Jesus and my service, Jesus and my righteousness, but it's Jesus alone. If our righteousness came through our good works, if we could earn the merit and favor of God because of how good we are, then God's grace is not free. And God's grace is not undeserved. Romans 11, 6, Paul says, if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it, if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Listen, when we live in light of the gospel, our motivation for our work changes. Before the gospel, our works and our obedience are viewed as bringing us closer to God. We want to earn favor with God. We have this idea that we can train, trade in our coin of righteousness and put it into God's vending machine and we'll get blessing out of it. But inside the gospel, our works and obedience flow from what Christ has done for us. It's what we talked about last week. It's the outward expression of the inward work that is going on in the life of the believer. Listen, the gospel guards against false teaching. The gospel exposes the vanity of our works and the gospel reveals the message of salvation. My last point, I promise, unlike Paul, that I will be quick. The gospel gives the antidote to self-righteousness. In warning against self-righteousness, Paul reminds the Philippians of the place of true righteousness. Like most religious people today, Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble but not enough righteousness to get into heaven. It was not bad things that kept Paul away from Jesus. It was good things. But Paul had to lose his religion to find salvation. As we look at these last three verses, I'm gonna give you some words that you ought to know. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. The first one, justification. Look at verse nine with me. Justification is the idea that we are made right with God. So in verse 9, Paul says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith 
of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. True righteousness comes only when you are justified in Christ. What the law could never deliver is attained only in the person and work of Jesus. Listen, we're not made righteous through anything that we do, but only through faith in what Christ has already done. When Paul trusted Christ, he lost his own righteousness, but he took on the righteousness of Christ. This is called imputation. You can read about imputation in Romans chapter 4, but all that word means is to put into one's account. Paul looked at his own record and he discovered that he was spiritually bankrupt. He looked at Christ's record and saw that he was perfect. So when Paul trusted Christ, he, he saw God put the righteousness of Christ to his own account. If we look through a piece of red glass, everything's red. If we look through a piece of blue glass, everything is blue. If we look through a piece of yellow glass, everything is yellow. When we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, God looks at us through Jesus Christ. He sees us in all white holiness of his son. Our sins are imputed to the account of Christ and his righteousness to our accounts. After being made right with God through faith in Christ, Paul says that he wants to know Christ. Man, I wish I had time to really just hang on this, this verse here. Just think about what he's saying, that I may know Christ. This is the act of sanctification. It's Becoming more like Christ means, means becoming more godly. When you are found righteous in Christ, your priorities begin to change. As if Paul didn't care about the works of his flesh, all he cared about was knowing his Savior. Paul wants to know Christ experientially. This isn't, he doesn't just want to know of Christ. He doesn't want to know about what Christ did, but he wants to know his Savior intimately. Listen, when he was living under the law, Paul had a set of rules, but now he had a friend. Now he had a constant companion. And knowing Christ, he wants to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Here, Paul goes again talking about these sufferings of Christians, right? This has been a repeated thing, but the truth is, if you want to know Christ intimately, if you want to know Christ deeply, it's through suffering for him that you will know him better. And then lastly, Paul anticipates the day of his resurrection in verse 11. This is glorification. Glorification is God's final removal of sin from the life of the believer. At Christ's coming, the Day of Christ coming, the glory of God, his, his honor, his praise, his majesty, his holiness will be realized in us. Instead of being mortals burdened with sin nature, we will be changed into holy immortals with direct and unhindered access to God's presence. And we'll be able to enjoy holy communion with him forever. Listen, true Christianity is about a relationship, not religion. We've all heard it before. It's relationship over 
religion. But I just want to encourage you this morning, the same way that Paul aimed to encourage the church at Philippi. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Listen, if your relationship with God brings shame, if it brings guilt and fear, what you have is religion. There's no joy in that. You can only rejoice in the Lord when you stop trying to earn God's favor. Constantly living with concern that he's disappointed in you and rather you sit at the feet of the Savior and you long to know him intimately and you bask in the truths of the gospel and you recognize that your obedience flows from the work he's doing in you, not that you are working in order to be approved of. The gain of Christ in the midst of losing all things is a reason for joy. Glory only in Christ and placing no confidence in the flesh is a reason for joy. Knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection is a reason for joy. Rejoice in the truths of the gospel and be not yoked by the bondage of legalism. For whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Every head down, I suppose. Have the worship team come forward. So if there's anybody here this morning, and as I was speaking of the righteousness we have in Christ, you say, I 